join us for the TVO Telethon, March 23rd and 24th, and donate early for a chance at great prizes. Visit telethon.tvo.org for more information. For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at tvo.org daily. The six months that have elapsed since a global pandemic was declared may feel like an eternity, but it's a blip in time compared to how long it normally takes to develop a vaccine for such a scourge. With the world eager for progress and a return to normal, let's find out where things stand and how Canada is contributing to the effort. Joining us now in Picton, Ontario, Dr. Alan Bernstein, President and CEO of CIFAR and a member of Canada's COVID-19 Task Force. In the nation's capital, Jason Nickerson, humanitarian affairs advisor for Doctors Without Borders. And in Calgary, Alberta, the Toronto Star's Alex Boyd. And Dr. Bernstein, we're happy to welcome you back to the program. And Jason and Alex, nice to have you here for the first time. Let me just start by reading an excerpt from Foreign Affairs magazine that'll get us off to the races here with our discussion. Sheldon, if you would, the graphic. That sort of vaccine nationalism, or a my country first approach to allocation, will have profound and far-reaching consequences. Without global coordination, countries may bid against one another, driving up the price of vaccines and related materials. Desperate governments may also strike short-term deals for vaccines, with adverse consequences for their long-term economic, diplomatic and strategic interests. The result will be not only needless economic and humanitarian hardship, but also intense resentment against vaccine-hoarding countries, which will imperil the kind of international cooperation that will be necessary to tackle future outbreaks, not to mention other pressing challenges such as climate change and nuclear proliferation. Okay, let's get into this. Is geopolitical cooperation as important, Dr. Bernstein, in your view, as acquiring the vaccine itself? Uh, the short answer is yes, Steve. Uh, I think it's absolutely critical that uh, we work together, we being the nations of the world, the community of nations, because this virus knows no borders. Uh, so uh, if we're going to defeat the pandemic and the virus, we all need to be working together. Jason, what say you on that? Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, you know, it's been said many times before that uh, the pandemic doesn't end here until it ends everywhere. Uh, and certainly speaking from the perspective of uh, an international medical humanitarian organization uh, that responds to uh, conflicts around the world and, and provides medical assistance to people who are affected by conflict, natural disasters, disease epidemics, and, and uh, other emergencies, we're absolutely uh, concerned about how uh, the people that we provide care for are going to be able to access this vaccine and it's essential that they do. Alex, what are you finding in your reporting on this? You know, I think it's worth uh, acknowledging that uh, the argument for, for working together and for global collaboration is absolutely something that resonates with readers. Um, I've heard this quite a bit from people I've spoken to, that they're very proud of the role that Canada plays on the global stage. Um, but at the same time, I think it's worth acknowledging um, that Canada is, is kind of in a tricky position here. Um, we've heard from officials as well that they really value working together. We feel a sense of obligation to the global community. Um, but while there's been kind of some movements toward a global uh, global uh, collaboration, the COVAX facility, um, obviously being the big example, um, some big players are not participating. The U.S. obviously made headlines, uh, you know, with that decision. And so we're seeing a lot of countries, um, you know, 
making it very clear that they're putting money into this, but the fruits of that are for their citizens alone. And so in that context, I think Canada really is trying to sit on the fence a little bit. Um, they're saying we value this global collaboration, um, but at the same time, they're really you know hedging their bets and making sure we lock down um, some agreements of our own. Well, uh, okay, let me follow up with Alan on that. I mean, I, I, th I think it's fair to say the United States has been out there much more aggressively and more and I think earlier than Canada, in signing bilateral deals with various pharma companies to get something going mm -hmm. here. How does that affect Canada's efforts to get a vaccine for our citizens in this country? Oh, I think we've done quite well, actually. In fact, the latest announcement was just yesterday when Minister Anand announced that Canada had purchased uh, vaccines from Sanofi Pasteur GSK, a partnership between those two companies. Uh, and prior to that, she had announced uh, four different vaccines all of which we had been recommended by us at the vaccine task force. So I, I think we have secured um, what we were trying to do at the task force, which is vaccine candidates that represent the different platform. Because at the end of the day, we don't know which vaccine is going to work. And we don't know which platform is going to work and also be uh, safe. So we now have secured a lot of doses uh, from the three different platforms that everybody wants. So I think we're doing quite well. Alex, I wonder if you could tell us about something called the COVAX, C-O-V-A-X initiative. What is that? Definitely. So COVAX is really kind of the big global effort to try to get um, countries to come to the same table, table uh, and work together in terms of uh, vaccine, uh, both procurement and distribution. Uh, and so we know as of Monday that Canada is in. Um, so we're going to be part of this uh, this move to kind of pool money, invest in a slate of, of vaccine candidates, and then in the hopes that one or several actually work out, um, those eventual doses uh, will be shared among the member countries. So it is a move towards the global community working together. Together. Um, but critically, there's a second piece of this. Um, it's called the COVAX um, AMC, uh, or Advanced Market Commitment, and it's the fundraising arm um, that would raise money to make sure that countries that wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it, like Canada, are also able to participate in this. So I think it's going to be really critical um, to watch not only um, uh, the fact that Canada is participating in this, but whether or not we're going to step up and fund that move um, to make sure that countries that can afford it also have a seat at the table. My understanding is that conversation is ongoing. Um, we could expect news um, relatively shortly, um, but that's something definitely for Canadians to watch. And how much would we have had to contribute in order to be part of COVAX? It, it, the short answer is that uh, there's kind of a calculation. I don't want to go too much into the weeds, but um, there's a, an ability to order a certain number of doses based on our population. Um, there's also another kind of caveat where you can decide, you know, I would like these two vaccines. I'm less interested in this one. So you can kind of um, decide which vaccines you're most interested in. Um, so we don't know yet where what Canada has committed or what our agreement looks like. Um, I've had this conversation uh, with the federal procurement minister um, who has said, you know, they're keeping a lot of these details under wraps. Um, that's a move that's obviously they've been criticized for, but they are saying, you know, it's a really competitive atmosphere out there. Uh, and so they're, they're trying to kind of not tip their hand for bargaining. So they're keeping a lot of the details around payment um, secret at this point. Um, and I would imagine COVAX uh, is probably part of that. Understood. Jason, let me get you back in here. How satisfied are you with the Canadian government's efforts to find an effective and accessible vaccine to date? 
Well, I, I think that we need to look at all of the different moves that governments have been making uh, as part of the race to get a vaccine, because, uh, you know, as you know, a year ago, uh, this was not on anybody's radar uh, in, a, in a significant way. Um, although many of us had been sounding the alarm for many years saying that, look, we need to be prepared uh, for how we're going to react and respond in the event of a pandemic exactly like this. Um, we didn't know that it was going to be a coronavirus pandemic and, and that we would find ourselves today in September 2020 this situation. Um, so the, the Canadian government's response has been multifaceted and, and indeed many governments uh, have taken this approach. Uh, where we have seen uh, a lot of uh, upfront funding for uh, medical research and development being pushed out to researchers across Canada. And certainly there's a number of uh, research labs that are doing the work that needs to be done to uh, develop vaccine candidates on, on different platforms. Uh, in Canada, that's that's largely quite early stage work. Uh, the conversation that we're, we were just having here about uh, how Canada is going to procure vaccines uh, I mean this is again is is sort of the the question of the day is is how uh, once we have a, a viable uh, vaccine candidate that's safe that's effective how are we going to get that out to people who need to have access to it um, and I think that this is where we're starting to see some really concerning trends where uh, you know the conversation a few months ago was around how do we create something like COVAX, which didn't exist before? Uh, because quite frankly, the, the global pharmaceutical industry is not set up uh, to ensure global equitable access to new uh, technologies such as this in a, in a quick, timely, affordable manner. Um, and now the conversation has shifted in a, in a slightly different way where we do see countries that are, are making moves to uh, secure uh, vaccines through these bilateral agreements. And, and quite frankly, we have uh, quite a few uh, big questions about what that might mean well, for global okay. equitable access. Hold off for a second there on, on distribution and who's going to get it and how and when. We're going to come back to that in a bit. I, I still want to figure out more. Alan, maybe I can get you back in here on this. Uh, research. Did we not have a research initiative going with, with uh, elements in China? And if so, where is the, what's the status of that right now? Well, I think the status of the, of the China initiative is that the seed stock that the Chinese were going to send to Canada has been held up in the uh, Chinese customs. So basically it's stalled, if not over. Uh, but I think the good news is uh, that we've recognized that there are a whole lot of vaccine initiatives, both domestically and internationally. Uh, and, and indeed, uh, through the task force recommendations, some of those have been made. So Medicago is a Quebec-based company which is receiving funding, uh, as are the five uh, companies internationally that we've also recommended the Minister Anand has agreed on and uh, we've made deals. So I, I think we've got, um, we are looking at the task force very carefully at all the basic science uh, programs that are, are underway and trying to identify the ones that are the most promising that promised to develop a, a vaccine as, as quickly as possible that's safe and effective and ditto for the international ones. So I, I think we're in good shape as a country. And just if I could pick up on the international for a moment, Steve, mm -hmm. I think uh, I agree with colleagues on this panel that it's very important that we also play our role as part of the community of nations, both for altruistic humanitarian reasons, but also because for self-interest. Uh, we know that the, the whole pandemic started with a single individual in Wuhan being infected with this virus. So if the virus is not stamped out everywhere, it'll just come back and bite us. So it's in our self-interest to participate in facilities like COVAX 
and, and other multilateral or bilateral initiatives so that we, we uh, help get equitable access to a safe and effective vaccine for everybody on the no, I take your, key. I, I certainly take your point on that. But, uh, you know, some people are going to be wondering why, given how terrible our relationship is with China right now, in part because they're holding two of our citizens, I was going to say hostage, but I guess technically in prison. Um, how, how wise was it to embark on some kind of co-scientific venture with them, given how bad our relations with them are right now? Well, I can turn that around, actually, and say, you know, because our relations with between the two countries is not very good, um, science is a great way of, of crossing borders, just like viruses know no borders. Science knows no borders. And so, although I'm not, I'm not sure this was part of the thinking, uh, uh, it, this is a good way of bridging between countries. So I wouldn't be critical that we wanted to have a dialogue with a country that we're having troubles with. Quite the opposite. I think we should be opening those doors as much as possible and encouraging dialogue uh, to solve this problem. It's a big problem. I agree with you. Okay. You've mentioned Minister Anand a couple of times. That's Anita Anand, who is the minister in charge of procurement. She's basically got this file. And Alex, let me ask you, uh, what pharmaceutical companies does Canada currently have deals with in hopes of getting a vaccine? Uh, so we currently have deals with uh, five different companies. Um, so Moderna, uh, they're based in the U.S. Uh, Janssen, it's it's basically the pharmaceutical arm of Johnson & Johnson. Uh, with Pfizer, um, they're actually working with a, a German company called BioNTech. And so kind of the hope is there is that they can use BioNTech's um, technology and then use kind of uh, Pfizer's uh, muscle to, to distribute uh, an eventual vaccine, assuming one comes to market. Um, Novavax, and then of course, uh, the one that uh, Dr. Bernstein already mentioned, Sanofi, which uh, was just announced earlier this week. Okay, there's a lot of players, Alex, in this space. So, mm -hmm. and, and to the best of my knowledge, the prime minister, the procurement minister, the finance minister, I mean, none of these people are scientific experts. So mm -hmm. how, how do they know whom to sign deals with and whom not to? Uh, well, you know, that might actually be a, a great question for Dr. Bernstein, um, because the vaccine task force, of which he obviously is a member, um, was set up to do just that, to provide, um, you know, science-based evidence um, to, to make sure that our, our political leaders have kind of um, the best evidence available in front of them. And as already mentioned, um, part of the calculus here um, is making sure that we have um, the three main um, platforms of vaccine represented. Um, there's many ways to skin a cat. There's many ways to make a vaccine. Um, so the goal here is just to make sure that we have as diverse a portfolio um, as possible. Because I, I think it's worth maybe reiterating the point that everyone I've spoken to says, you know, we're not really hunting for just a silver bullet here. Um, what is more likely is when we get to the end of this, um, there will be multiple vaccines um, that are viable, but maybe useful for different segments of the population. So it's not like there's one vaccine that's going to solve all our problems. Um, we're more likely to end up with kind of like a portfolio of them that used together in different situations for different groups um, are kind of effective as a group. Huh. Okay. Interesting. D uh, Dr. Bernstein, you want to come in on that? How, how, did, how do you know whom to recommend to do business with and whom not to, since presumably there are, you know, a lot of reputable players in this space? We've, we've been meeting uh, almost daily since uh, the beginning of June, as we being a group of about 15 uh, scientists, immunologists, people from industry, people from the venture capital community. And we've been interviewing uh, all the companies that Alex mentioned and a whole lot other, of others, uh, really looking at the evidence. What's the evidence that the vaccine that they're producing is showing positive results in early trials 
uh, and it seems to be safe or not. Um, and so we've gone through a whole lot and we've sifted through them. And on the basis of that, we've recommended the five that Alex has just mentioned. So, and we're not finished. We still, uh, you know, there's a lot more vaccines out there. And our goal, again, as Alex touched on this, there may not be one vaccine that works for all age groups, all demographics, um, uh, all occupations, uh, uh, people with pre-existing conditions. And so uh, it's, it's a big mistake to put your eggs all in one basket, even if you knew which one was safe and effective. So uh, I think the task force has been working really hard. Uh, I can speak from personal experience. We have six-hour Zoom calls uh, twice a week. Uh, you try that. Um, and uh, I, I, th I think what's been really uh, reassuring to all of us on the task force is that the ministers we report to, which is the Minister of Health, and the Minister of Industry, Science and Economic Development um, have taken our recommendations extremely seriously and have, and have only recommended to the Minister of Procurement the vaccines that the task force has recommended. So I think Canadians should be reassured that the vaccines that, that are going forward, based on the evidence we have as of today at least, uh, are showing great promise. Jason, I think, you know, we may have heard hints of the answer to this next question in that last answer, but let me throw it your way anyway. You know, if if somebody else gets to the finish line first, you know, Canadian citizens will have put hundreds of millions of dollars into our efforts to find something. And if somebody gets there first, I guess we, we want to know whether or not all the money that we put into something that ultimately might be superseded by something else, did that money go to waste? What's your view on that? Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm I'm a scientist by training, and and so my uh, answer is, of course, going to be that that money invested in in science is never a waste. I mean, we're we're learning something uh, all the time, and and I think it's absolutely uh, appropriate that governments around the world are investing in trying to identify uh, a solution, whether that be in the form of a vaccine or a therapeutic or a diagnostic test or or a variety of other things. Um, I think that the the key uh, question that Canadians and in, indeed uh, people around the world need to be asking uh, is, is what is the, the return on this investment? Uh, what uh, strings have been attached to this to this funding that's gone out the door? Um, unfortunately, uh, there there is a, a, a fairly uh, dismal track record of uh, health technologies being uh, discovered with public funds that end up being licensed uh, out to the private sector uh, that then ultimately become inaccessible and, and unaffordable for patients uh, when they come to market. This is a bigger problem than than just COVID uh, vaccines and, and COVID in, in general. Um, but I think that it really speaks to a conversation that we need to have about uh, how we incentivize and support uh, medical research and development uh, today. I should let Dr. Bernstein come back at that in case he wants to comment. Well, I think Alex, is, you know, you've raised a big, it's a much bigger question than we probably have time for today. I think the, the, the fact is for the COVID pandemic, which is what we're in the middle of this global crisis, um, the, the key to this, the exit strategy from this crisis is a vaccine. Uh, and the investments that for countries like Canada are making uh, are, are being called at risk or no regret investments in the sense that we don't know which vaccine and the end of the day is going to be safe and effective. And so to expect a manufacturer to make these vaccines uh, with it, when there's no market, if they turn out not to be safe and effective, is unrealistic. Um, and so what countries have been doing, including Canada's, is giving money partly up front 
with the condition that if it's not safe and effective, we won't we won't provide the rest of the funding. But if it is safe and effective, and if Health Canada approves it, we will we will we will buy the whole the whole kit and caboodle. Now um, we may end up buying more vaccines than we actually need because we're buying you know a lot of doses from five different manufacturers so far. Uh, uh, but I think the argument there is if it all turn out to be safe and effective. We can then donate those vaccines, not through COVAX or, or even through COVAX, but also just unilaterally to countries that matter to Canada. So the Caribbean countries are a good example to me. We have a lot of immigrants from the Caribbean in this country. Uh, a lot of Canadians want to go to the, the Caribbean in the winter. We, we could donate those vaccines to people in the Caribbean. So I think the question that's been raised, the bar- larger question, is a, is a very valid question. Um, but I think in the middle of a crisis, uh, I think we just got to get on with it and get the vaccines made as soon as possible. OK. Alex would want you to know, incidentally, that it was Jason who was making that point and not Alex. Jason, but I, yeah, yeah. Anyways, yeah. my apologies. We my move apologies. along here. No, not at all. Well, listen, as long as you've got the floor, let me ask you about one research uh, effort that's underway here right now. Six hundred million bucks, apparently, to fund research and clinical trials here. What are the big research projects currently underway in Canada? Dr. B, that's for you. Well, there's a lot of them, actually. I, um, I think there's, there's, I'll divide them into two broad categories. Uh, one is around uh, how do we get a domestic vaccine as soon as possible? Uh, and so there's a lot of efforts. Uh, I mentioned already Medicago in Quebec City. Uh, there's a group at the uh, Vito, the lab in, Sus- in Saskatoon. That's there's some groups in Vancouver at UBC. So there's a number of efforts uh, elsewhere, and I haven't named all of them. I think the second broad category of research is dealing with what are the, the uh, social issues, the mental health issues uh, uh, of this pandemic. And I, th- I think we underestimate, underestimate them at our peril. And how can we prepare for them for the next pandemic? Because there will be uh, a next pandemic. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a lot of research going on. There's also a lot of research going on in therapeutics. Uh, so one of the most promising areas of research are monoclonal antibodies. These are antibodies uh, that are produced in the lab, which can be given to people who have the disease. Uh, so they're, they're not a vaccine, they're a therapeutic. And there's a company in Vancouver uh, called Upcelera that has developed a suite of very powerful monoclonal antibodies uh, that uh, I expect to be rolled out soon. Uh, Eli Lilly, the drug company, is partnering with them and made that announcement uh, last week. So there's a whole lot of work going on here. I think it's fair to say Canadians should be quite proud of what Canadian scientists are doing to end this pandemic. Okay. Alex, let me ask you uh, a question that I suspect many Canadians want to know the answer to. Mm -hmm. And that is based on what you've, you know, as you've been nosing around and reporting on this, if and when a vaccine is available, will it be free? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think um, the whole question of cost uh, is, is kind of a big question mark at this point. Um, I've seen, um, you know, some estimates of how much these doses could cost ranging from like $5 to over $100, I think, um, was was China's last discussion for their uh, latest two-dose uh, vaccine option. Um, but I think at this point, there's still going to be, there's just kind of too many questions around um, which one becomes viable, how it needs to be distributed. Is it one 
shot? Is it two shot? Um, all of which will influence price. Um, one of the things I'm seeing increasingly discussed um, is one of the new technologies um, that we have two companies that we have agreements with um, are, are testing out right now is called mRNA vaccines. Um, it's a new technology, a new technology, sorry. Um, a lot of people think it has a lot of potential, um, but it has to be stored at a very, very cold temperature, um, which would affect um, kind of the cost of, of distributing it. So um, I think at this point, just based on my conversations um, with various companies and, and people who are kind of watching this, um, there's there's just a lot of variables um, that are going to go into cost. Um, so it's maybe a little bit soon to, to know how much these are actually going to set us back. Okay. Uh, Jason Nickerson, what's your advice to the government on, on the, the vaccine, whether it ought to be free for all Canadians to take? I think uh, absolutely. I mean, we've we've been saying this uh, since the start of the pandemic. I mean, this the vaccine needs to be uh, free and readily accessible to to everyone uh, who needs it. This is absolutely true in the in the places where uh, MSF works. As I mentioned, we're we're responding to crises uh, in in uh, conflict affected countries uh, around the world. Uh, we we can't have cost and and price being a barrier to access to to vaccines or therapeutics for that matter. And Ellen Bernstein, have you made a recommendation to government on this yet? No, we haven't. It's not part of our purview, so I, we have not made a recommendation. My own personal view would be to agree with what Jason just said, which is it's in all our interest that everyone be vaccinated. Um, so it's a collective good. So I think the uh, we should all be paying for it through our taxes uh, so that we're all uh, there's no barrier to vaccination because of cost. Okay, the other tricky uh, question here, Dr. Bernstein, is who gets to decide who gets the vaccine first? There, there's been a lot of discussions uh, in Ottawa um, and also internationally. I think I think most people would agree that front people who are at greater risk should get the vaccine first. And I think it's fairly easy to identify those individuals. They're uh, frontline healthcare workers. I think we all would agree should get the vaccine first. Uh, people who live in multi generational settings. People who work in, in uh, uh, seniors uh, facilities. Uh, people who uh, indigenous people. Um, uh, you know, th I think those uh, and, and others, those those categories of individuals, and we can all we may disagree on the which goes first and which goes second and third. But I think that that grouping should uh, definitely get the vaccine first. Se I would add seniors on top of that. So um, they would get the vaccine first, I think. And I think the analysis that has been done in other countries also do the same groupings. But I don't expect a lot of controversy there. Uh, and then we go down from there. The fact is, I think this is important. Um, we're not going to be able to make, you know, 20 to 35 million doses or if we need if we need two doses, 70 million doses all at once. So not everybody, even in Canada, never mind the world is going to have access to these vaccines on day one. Right. I mean, Alex, presumably, every, you know, he's 35 million Canadians. And as Dr. Bernstein says, they're not all going to get it on day one. So there, mm -hmm. there, there, there presumably is a protocol in place somewhere which agrees upon who's going to get it first and then who's going to have to wait six months and so on. Is that how this is going to roll out? We don't know yet, but to be honest, I, I mean, I find this question very interesting. I, it's obviously a question that's going to be re relevant to um, all Canadians uh, sooner rather than later. Um, Canada has not yet made public their criteria for who is going to be going, getting the vaccine first. Um, it, it, there is a decent likelihood, likelihood, sorry, I would say that it's um, maybe roughly based on what the, the World Health Organization is saying, um, which is very closely aligned with what Dr. Bernstein mentioned, um, frontline workers 
workers, seniors, uh, people who are otherwise high risk. Um, they calculate that's probably about 20% of the average country's population. Um, we know the CDC uh, in the States is looking at a fairly similar model um, as well. So while we don't know um, for sure what those conversations are in Ottawa right now, um, that's probably not a bad model to look at as something that, that they might be looking at as a potential option. Okay, with just a few minutes to go here, let me ask our director, Sheldon Osmond, to bring up this graphic here about developing notable vaccines over the course of history. Now, we know the current president of the United States, who's a very stable genius, as he tells us, thinks that a vaccine <laughs> will be in place on November 2nd, the day before Election Day. Um, I suppose that's possible. Um, but look how long it took polio, uh, a vaccine to come forward. Seven years. A vaccine for the measles took nine years. A vaccine for chickenpox took 34 years. Uh, as we get more recent, uh, the mumps, only four years, okay, but then HPV, 15 years. And now COVID-19, of course, we're only into, um, well, we're within a year. Um, Jason, you want to start us off on this? What, would, would you trust a vaccine that were available, that was available on November 2nd? Well, I think the, the the key issue here is is ensuring that uh, data and regulatory processes uh, are going to be transparent. I think that at the heart of uh, a lot of this discussion and a lot of the critiques of uh, you know the, the the conversation around safety and effectiveness is fundamentally a question of transparency. Uh, we have scientists who want to see the clinical trial protocols, who want to see the data, who want to be able to, to analyze uh, independently uh, the, the safety and efficacy of, of these data and be able to communicate that to the public. And so I, I think that really this is what we need to be talking about is how do we communicate effectively and transparently uh, the science uh, and, and indeed the, the, the safety and, and uh, effectiveness data that underlies any decision about uh, which vaccine uh, is going to be made available and, and when. Well, we've got about a minute left here, Alan, and I wonder if you could speak to that. I mean, the trouble is you've got, yeah. you've got politicians on their schedule saying when they think vaccines are coming forward, they hope, as opposed to what scientists are telling us is really more likely. Uh, weigh in on that if you would. Sure. So uh, not to repeat what Jason just said, but I agree with what he said. I would add to that three things. First, the science has changed so rapidly over the last few years. So RNA vaccines are a good example. Um, when the Chinese put the sequence of the virus on the web early January, uh, Moderna, the Boston-based company, uh, made that virus in vitro in a, in a test tube within days um, and had it going in mice with the next week and then had permission from the FDA to start a phase one trial two months later. So um, that's, that's blistering speed for vaccine production. I think the second thing is um, instead of doing things linearly, you know, first we'll do a phase one trial, then a phase two, then a phase three, and then we'll manufacture the vaccine. We're doing things sequential. We're doing things in parallel. So we're the manufacturers are starting to make those vaccines as we speak, even before they know whether they're safe and effective. To hmm. speed up time. And the third thing that's happening is a constant dialogue now between the regulators, uh, Health Canada in our case and the manufacturers. So the, the regulators are seeing the data in real time. And if they have questions, they're not waiting till the end of the trials to say, you know, you should be addressing this. They're, they're asking those questions now. Uh, and the fourth thing is, I think, uh, is the, the global collaboration that's going on amongst the scientists, uh, scientists and industry, scientists and government, the regulators, uh, has also speeded it up. 
So I think one of the great things about this is that there's been a, 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 a sea change in how we make vaccines that we realize we can actually make these vaccines remarkably quickly so that for the next pandemic, we shouldn't go through the five years, six years, you know, the 10 years that you were just talking about, Steve. So I think this has been a huge lesson that we can learn. But I think the end of the day, the vaccines have to be safe as well as effective. Otherwise, people will not trust the next vaccine that comes along. I think we all understand that, especially, of course, the regulator. Well, this comes down to trust. And you don't engender trust if you say the vaccine will be ready the day before my election. Bingo. Dr. Bernstein, Jason Nickerson, Alex Boyd, good of all three of you to join us on TVO tonight. We're really grateful for your time. Thanks very much. Thanks. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario. And by viewers like you. Thank you.